This is the 77 Minutes in Heaven podcast, the Dallas Mavericks podcast. That's a part of the Athletic Podcast Network. You're hearing new voices. I'm Brian Damaris, and I'm with Mark Followell. Hello, Brian. Great to be here, man. I'm really excited about our first podcast together. We've done a lot of shows together on Sports Radio 1310, The Ticket in Dallas, and we've had a lot of phone conversations over the years that I think that would make great podcast about Mavericks basketball, but uh, now we're doing it for real. Yes, we will be uh, a weekly presence on this podcast now, alternating with Tim and friends, and uh, we will mainly be doing these post-game after a home game that the Mavericks have during the week. Yep. Um, and if they don't have a home game that week, we'll, we'll uh, join each other when you're on the road. Um, but I think we should introduce ourselves to the listeners. Sure. So that they know who we are and can enjoy our fine work. Uh, I am Brian Damaris, B. Damaris on Twitter, B-D-A-M-E-R-I-S. Uh, I was uh, the first analytics guy for the Mavericks back in the mid-2000s, starting in 2002. Uh, the Mavericks were the first team to do analytics in the NBA and um, did that for several years and am in my sixth year uh, on the Mavericks post-game show on the ticket, as you mentioned, with yes. with you and with Jake Kemp. Uh, so... Um, Jake Kemp, also a prominent contributor, of course, to Athletic DFW. That's right. Yep. You, you, you see his writing uh, periodically on the site, and he is uh, heavily in the analytical side. So um, check us out after home games uh, online with the iHeartRadio app, and uh, check us out weekly here on 77 Minutes in Heaven. Why don't you give a brief rundown of, uh, of yourself? Well, I'm in my 21st season as a broadcaster for the Mavericks. My first couple of years were mostly doing radio studio. I did do some radio play-by-play in the 99-2000 and 2000-2001 seasons. In 2001, Brian, uh, when you were starting with the Mavericks, I was starting with the Mavericks as well, uh, full-time anyway, as the team's radio play-by-play announcer. And then since 2005, the television play-by-play announcer on Fox Sports Southwest. Um, and when I'm not doing Mavericks basketball, uh, we're talking about it on Sports Radio 1310, the ticket after games. And I'm also the voice of FC Dallas on the TV broadcast. I've done a lot of uh, soccer work for Fox Sports over the years, um, including the World Cup in 2018, did the Olympics for NBC in 2016, soccer coverage, and many, many other soccer events for Fox Sports over the years. CONCACAF Gold Cup, UEFA Europa League, Youth World Cups, um, just a little bit of everything over the years. So that's uh, the, the Reader's Digest version, if I may uh, make a very old reference. That's my, that's my shortened bio. And I think you and I are a good combination because as a broadcaster, you see the team intimately on the road at home. You see every team that comes through. And I kind of have the I don't know, front office insider view of things, of how things have been. I've been in the room with Donnie when uh, trades are made. Uh, I've been, you know, inside the organization. I still have contacts up and down the organization from the very top to the very bottom. So I can give you some insight into what is actually being thought about inside right. the organization, um, as well as kind of the um, the thought process from players as well. So the funny thing is, Brian, you were the first director of analytics for the Mavericks, and of course, things are not like this this day. Uh, an analytics report is treated with. Uh, reverence and is very, very important to study. But you could also speak to when you were doing analytics reports, perhaps the large uh, group of papers that were stapled together that you might deliver were perhaps not treated with uh, the significance that 
analytics reports might be treated with today. Things were a little bit different when and when analytics were just getting off the ground and you were giving those reports to a gentleman we love, Don Nelson. Yes, Don, Nelly, Don Nelson, who had been in the business at that time, been in basketball longer than I was alive. <laughs> Way longer. I'll give you a quick story. I, I remember walking in. So I had to color code my reports for him to make them as simple and and focus the attention where I wanted. So green was good, red was bad <laughs> on the certain numbers that I wanted him to look at. And I remember walking into his office in the in the arena one time with with I, I would do a post game report and a pregame report, you know, for every game. And uh, so I had the pregame report for this game. It was about 30 minutes to game time. And I was nervous because, you know, I'm walking into his office and I'm sure he's looking at some film. And he was he was over by his conference table looking at his monitor. And I'm sure he's looking at film. And as I walk in to give it to him, he's watching the Masters golf tournament. So <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, he, he wasn't going to pour through my, my report as, as keenly as possible. But I will say that I did get a phone call uh, during a losing losing streak, it was like a six game losing streak or something like that in March. Uh, gosh, I can't remember. Oh, two Marquise Daniels first year, whatever year that was. The o three o four season. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you why that's true. So he's like, uh, you know, these reports you've been giving me, like, like what, you know, tell tell me more. And this was March of this year. <laughs> so it's like already been sixty games yeah. played. And I I explained some stuff and I, I basically showed him that. Uh, Antoine Walker was dragging the team down, but he was especially dragging Marquise Daniels down. When they played together, Marquise's numbers were considerably worse than they were mm-hmm. without playing with Antoine. And from that moment on, with about 20 games to go in the season, he stopped playing them together. And Marquise took off, if you remember. Yeah. And that got him his $30 million contract. And That's to right. this day, I tell Marquise he owes me a little piece of that. <laughs> because that was at a time whenever, you know, he was on a one-year deal. And so he was a restricted free agent. Yeah, they had to use their mid-level exception at the time, which was a six-year, $36 million deal, the max that you could give under the mid-level exception. And so To a, uh, a second-round pick. Yeah, yeah. So that was undrafted. He wasn't even a second-round pick. Marquise was undrafted, right. as a matter of fact, after his time at Auburn. So... So he had, uh, I had no idea. That is, I know a lot of your stories. That is one I did not know. 8.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning and my phone rings and it's Nelly. And I, I don't even know how he knew, had my cell number. Right? <laughs> but it was, it was uh, Nelly's a great guy. I visited him in, in Hawaii uh, a couple of years ago and saw him at the Nash's induction in the Hall of Fame. But what we're going to do on this pod, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, just uh, I don't think any amount of your analytics uh, feedback and reports and your color-coded green and red could have done anything for the Mavericks in this first game that we're going to dissect. We're starting our podcast, which we're going to do, you know, as like you said, once a week. And after the worst loss of the season tonight for the Mavs, Brian, 133-104. Yeah, what we usually do is right after the game, we're recording this on Tuesday evening, right after the Mavericks game, uh, give you a quick post-game analysis of what just happened, a review of kind of the week and a preview of the week ahead. Uh, this week, we will do that. We will also touch on kind of the story that is in the NBA of yeah. Kobe Bryant. Of course. And specifically how that, you know, the Mavericks connections to that story. Uh, but let's start with, as you mentioned, the game that just happened tonight, the biggest loss of the season for the Mavericks and, and, and some key points you saw from this one. Well, look, the Mavs going to play in this game against Phoenix – on Tuesday, January 28th, as the number one team in the league. 
in, in terms of made threes per game, Brian. They're, they're averaging 15.1 made threes per game. Uh, they go 7 of 33 from the three-point line tonight. So, look, that's that's the number one thing that jumps out to me is the Mavs are incredibly reliant. They've embraced the idea of shoot threes or get in the paint. Uh, not as much as Houston, who the Mavs are going to see later this week, but certainly the Mavs are amongst uh, the most prominent teams embracing that idea and trying to move away from mid-range shots. So 41 threes that they're taking a game, and tonight was a night that it was just very, very poor. Um, you know, that stands out to me. And, and look, anytime on a telecast, and you know this, Brian, I mean, you watch what Derek Harper and, and Jeff Skin Wade and I talk about. When the Mavs go down early, we're always the first to point out, look, there's a lot of time. Tonight really felt like one of those nights that the first couple of turnovers in the flow of play, after both teams took turnovers as tributes to Kobe, which we'll talk about later on, but the first two turnovers that the Mavs committed on their first two possessions in the flow of real play were bad turnovers that led to breakaway scoring opportunities at the other end, one of which Phoenix cashed in on after they missed the first shot and the ball bounced and Phoenix got the offensive rebound and three Mavs are looking at it. And Rick took a timeout. And when you when you take out the the eight and twenty four second violations that were part of the tribute, he took a timeout at ten forty. So in the first real minute of the game, Rick sensed how bad things were going and took a timeout at that point. And they never, other than a good little burst from JJ in the second quarter, I mean honestly, they never got better, Brian. Yeah, the third quarter was really where it got out of hand. Uh, the Phoenix Suns score forty eight points in the third quarter. Uh, that is the most points they have scored in a quarter since 1990. Wow. And I cannot believe that the seven seconds or less era Suns never scored more than 48 points in a quarter. Yeah, just just absolutely uh, horrendous on all sides. I, I kind of see this game as a throwaway game. Uh, I know you don't feel this way, but, you know, it's, it's the second game of a back-to-back. It is a week from the trade deadline where guys are – preoccupied with whether they're going to be on this team or not. Mm-hmm. It's a couple of weeks from the All-Star game when we're in the dog days and they just want to get to that break, extended break. Uh, it's also, you know, two days after the, the passing of Kobe and and there's just a haze over the entire league. Right. Um, you know, the tributes, as you mentioned, it, it, it there, there wasn't a lot of flow or vibe or energy from the Mavs tonight. For me, this is a game that you don't look at the tape and you kind of throw it away. If you look at the losses this team has had this year, they've only had, this is now the sixth loss of over six points that they've right. had all year. Right. Three of those are to the Lakers, one's to the Clippers, mm-hmm. one is a 10-point loss to the Celtics, and this game. Yeah, Brian, by far, this is the biggest margin of, de- of a defeat for the Mavs this year. The previous biggest was 15, right. and they almost doubled that with a 29-point right. loss tonight. And, and those, as I mentioned, three of those are the Lakers, one of those are the Clippers, you know, two of the three best teams in the league. Right. Uh, not by record, but just as by status. Um, so, you know, listen, they laid an egg. I kind of forgive it, but I think you see more, you know, ramifications out of this one. Well, what I see out of it is this, and and I would just, and I I don't think that your opinion is without merit. Uh, I do think that there are ways that you can explain it. This is the one thing that I would say, and part of this generates from the fact that success creates expectations, and the Mavs have been very successful, 29 and 18 at the time we're recording this podcast. I mean, you would agree with that. Success creates expectations, right? So I I recall what Rick said after a game 
And for the, for the sake of time, I won't set up everything about why he said what he said. But he just said something that, that uh, you know, for Rick especially, who's always very, very protective of the team. And, and how many times have you and I heard post-game press conferences where Rick says, I got to do better. This loss is on me. I mean, we hear that all the time. Right. Yes. Yeah. Which, which translation, it's not on him. And he doesn't <laughs> believe that, but he's telling the press that. And he's going to ream the players later. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. So so there was one particular game where Rick was not as protective. And he said some pretty strong things about how they played in a particular game in New Orleans in March of 2011. And the next day, because there was a back-to-back, and so he was asked about his very, very pointed criticisms that he had about the way they played and some aspects of it the next day before the game. And he said, if you're in it to win it at the highest level, you just can never accept mediocrity. And so I I do think that there will be a portion of Rick's DNA that will not allow him to look at. I I do think Rick understands that, you know, look, there's certainly exceeding expectations or at least external expectations. I I don't think that he would if he were sitting here doing this podcast, he would say, hold up. We're not exceeding internal expectations because I didn't put expectations on it. I didn't want to limit us. Uh, He told me that on media day. He told that. Uh, when we talked on the on the first day of training camp or the media day before the first day of training camp. But but externally, expectations have been exceeded. So there's probably a part of Rick that will be willing to look at it the way you did. But the things I hear Rick say, they stick with me. And that's something he said nine years ago now, Brian. And that, that sticks with me, that if you're in it to win at the highest level, you can't just uh, you know accept these things completely and dismiss them as one of 82. And just a fluke and and explain it away with all of the reasons that, that you are. Yeah, and, and having said what I said, I, I do agree. I think if you want to be a championship team, that's the mindset you have to have. And this Maybe team, the life cycle of the organization isn't there yet. Well, this team isn't sneaking up on anybody anymore. They are starting to get people's best efforts. You know, Luca's a superstar now. He's yes. one of the top five players in the league. You know, he's a, a second-leading vote-getter. He's a starter in the All-Star game. They have to be on point every single game. They can't take games off. Uh, they did take a game off tonight, but am I willing to give that a pass? Sure, because I haven't seen it habitually happen. This is, like I said, the first game, you know, mm-hmm. over 15 points that they've lost all year. Yeah. There is something to be said for the fact that you're getting to game number 47 of the season before you lose, before you get dismantled. This badly. I right. guess there is something to be said for that. Um, but I think, as you mentioned what Rick said, that, you know, what's concerning is this home away split and kind of how, you know, why that's happening. And, mm-hmm. and I think you have some stats on what, what those are now. 13 and 12 at home for the Mavs. 16 and 6, though, on the road. So the Mavs, by far, and something that we mentioned on our telecast fairly recently on Fox Sports Southwest, the Mavs have by far the biggest positive disparity in road winning percentage relative to home winning percentage, which is it's great to be winning on the road and that bodes well potentially for the playoffs. Uh, It's not very good to be not protecting your home court to now be 13 and 12 and especially some of the losses. I mean, there's a, there's a loss to a Portland team that's well below 500, a Sacramento team that's well below 500, a Phoenix team tonight that's well below 500, um, the a Charlotte team, the Knicks. Yes, I mean, there's this is not just a one-off in terms of losing to a subpar opponent on their home floor. Yeah, and if you want to be a, a team that's making noise in the playoffs, not just making the playoffs, you have to beat those teams at home and mm-hmm. then be competitive and probably beat the lower, you know, the, the bottom half of the East on the road. I don't know. I don't even know how to explain 
that disparity. I really don't. I, I, it could be focus, I guess, and, and relaxing a little at home. I mean, I hear NHL players talk about that, that, uh, you know, sometimes that happens, but but that's such a different league and, and parity and one position can affect that league in ways, um, you know, goaltending I'm speaking of, obviously. And, and th- this league is just so much different. And so, yeah. They're a it's, young team, and I think a young team has growing pains, and they have to learn things. Um, it's an odd growing pain to have, but – yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but, you know, and listen, they are human beings with responsibilities. And at home, you have family responsibilities. On the road, you take a nap and watch movies and go to a game. Yeah, you're much more routine. There's a, there's a greater uh, structure and routine in a lot of ways on the road. So uh, there is something to be said for that. But, you know, again, having said that, this is an odd phenomenon. Now, I guess the good news is if they can get back to the mean somewhat at home, then their record will just increase even further. Sure, sure, provided they can maintain things on the road. You know, the one thing I would add for tonight's game, and then, uh, you know, we can move on to the Monday night game against Oklahoma City. But you mentioned the 48 points from the Phoenix perspective and how historic that was. It should also be noted, uh, I said on the telecast tonight, I hate giving out bad stats, Brian, but my UNT journalistic training, a little more bio information. I, I, I did go and actually at this time am going to North Texas. Uh, my UNT journalistic training. Your medieval his- history <laughs> classes online don't count. <laughs> my anthropology classes. Come on, man. Uh, so so my my past UNT journalistic training won't allow me to not share this, this uh, part of the who, what, where, when from the game tonight. And that is that 48 points conceded tonight by the Mavs in the third quarter of the game is the most points they've ever allowed in a quarter. 47 was the previous record, which actually has happened a couple of times recently, including earlier this year when they blew the game against Toronto right before Christmas and lost the 30-point lead. They gave up 47 points in the fourth quarter of that game. But 48 Tonight in the third quarter is the most points they've ever given them a quarter in 39 and a half seasons of Mavs basketball. And if you remember the 90s Mavs. Yeah, there was a bad team. They was bad. Yeah, so, I mean, 11 wins one year, 13 wins another, Brian. Not, uh, yes, you're right. So, um, and then last night uh, was, or excuse me, Monday night was a, uh, a win over the Thunder. 107-97. Uh, Chris Paul did not play in kind of a, you know, personal time because of the Kobe situation, uh, which greatly affects their team, especially considering the last time we played there at the end of December, uh, he was, I believe, 12 of their 14 last points or mm-hmm. something along those lines. Yep. Uh, playing tremendously well. Part of the reason Houston traded him was not wondering what his availability would be, and he, this mm-hmm. was the first game that he had missed all year. Yeah, yep. Uh, but Oklahoma City is, I believe, what, 23-8, and eight, uh, if I may steal a stat from your broadcast, uh, which is – you know, I think next to Milwaukee and the Lakers, probably the third best record since Thanksgiving. Yeah, I mean, they've turned it around since a 6-11 start. I think the game on Monday night in Oklahoma City, look, the first point I would say about this, and feel free to disagree if you think I'm jumping the gun a little bit on this, but this was big from a standings perspective. They're only playing three times this year. Two of the games were up there. Only one is in Dallas against the Mavericks at American Airlines Center. And by the way, that game is the final game of the regular season. It's game number 82 of the year. So the Mavs needed to have that game to ensure they would have a chance to have the tiebreaker. Uh, They went into the game on Monday night separated by one game in the standings. Now, granted, it was two games in the loss column. They had the same number of wins. The Mavs had two more losses than the Thunder did going into that particular game. But they were a game apart in the standings. And and they may be very, very close to each other 
in the standings for the remainder of the season. So so I, I thought that was a from from that standpoint alone as an entry point into the game, I thought that was made it a very, very significant game for the Mavericks to go up there and win. It, you know, it's interesting about the standings because I'm not as worried about that because there's such a bunching from two to seven right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really fearful of anyone but the Lakers and the Clippers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you put the Mavericks in a series with Denver or Houston or Utah or Oklahoma City, I'll take my chances. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel confident that we can make a series of it and, and perhaps even win. So wherever we lie in that group, as long as we're not matched up with the Clippers, mm-hmm. wherever they end up, because they're load managing so much, you know, them being two is not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination. Absolutely. Uh, I I don't fear that as much as I would in a typical year. The thing about it is, that's interesting, is from an historic perspective, and look, styles make fights, and so this doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of this year. But historically speaking, seven and eight seeds stand virtually no chance of winning. Once you get up to be a six seed, and so that's kind of why I always think along these lines, it's like, okay, well, historically, a six seed has at least some chance. Not that they have a huge success rate, but at least it's something that you can realistically talk yourself into. And then you get into four or five series, and those are are virtual toss-ups. Which makes, by the way, the Houston game that the Mavs are going to play later on this week on Friday night at 6.30 Central Time on Friday night, that makes that game really big because the Mavs have already beat Houston once. They're playing down there again where they won the other game uh, back in November, Brian. And then the other two games are going to be at home where hopefully they'll be taking care of their business better by that point in time. So this is a huge step towards potentially securing tiebreaker advantage against Houston, which is also a team that, that is going to be uh, and that you're going to be potentially battling it out for uh, four, five, five, six, or something along those so lines. So before we get into Houston and preview the week ahead, uh, one of the takeaways I had from the Thunder game was DeLon Wright in attacking the glass and, yeah. and getting some putbacks. Uh, because of the injury to Powell, it seems as though Rick has decided to use Wright, uh, go smaller and play Porzingis at the five. Yes. And play a smaller lineup, and Wright has been the guy that has kind of been inserted in the closing lineup, and it's good to see him uh, taking advantage of that with a game like he had. Um, but you were you were talking uh, earlier about second chance points, and, and mm-hmm. I think you had some interesting stats on that. By the way, Wright in a three game road trip to to Portland, Utah, and Oklahoma City, averaged over nine rebounds a game. Had his first double double of the season because of the fourteen points and twelve rebounds he had against the Thunder on Monday night. But one of the really neat things about the Mavs this year is that after not thinking and talking a whole lot about and putting a lot of emphasis on second-chance points, the Mavericks in eight of the last ten years have been in the bottom five in the league in second-chance points. This year, going into the Phoenix game on Tuesday night, the Mavs were number one in the league. Just over 15 second-chance points per game, Brian. Uh, The disparity in the Oklahoma City game was absolutely integral to winning the game because the disparity of second-chance points was 18-4. DeLon Wright had nine of those. So... I think historically, at least over the last few years, they have not attacked the offensive glass because their defense has been so poor that they need to get back. Yeah. And their transition D specifically has been so poor. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they've adjusted that somewhat. Well, now they're sending more guys to the offensive glass. And, you know, you and I have had lengthy discussions over the years. And, I, and I've, you know, you know how I prepare for things. And I've, I've looked at the numbers. And the thing about it is, is that offensive rebound percentage and winning don't correlate. I mean, you, you might look at any given season, Brian, 
and, and look at the top 10 teams and offensive rebound percentage, and five of them, if not more, can be bad teams. But we've also said on postgame shows over the years, that's what the numbers say in the grand scheme of things. But when you look at individual games and individual moments in games, second chance points could be a, a great thing to have. And I think where second chance points really matter with this team is, and I, and I tip my cap to my partner, Derek Harper, for making this point, you're giving the number one offense in the league a second shot. I mean, that's what matters. That's why second chance points are so efficient and so important to this team because they have the best offensive rating in the league this year. And if they sustain where they are, they're going to have the best offensive rating in the history of the NBA. And so you give that team a second shot opportunity, then there you go. That's why it's so important. Right. And, and if points per possession is kind of one of those key metrics that we look at, then second chance points gives you another shot during that same yep. possession, a 35% chance or whatever it is to to get the two or three points. Um, and Rick's always said, by the way, Brian, that, not always said, has said recently that, and this is a bit of a change in philosophy from him, because I've heard him use the term fool's gold when it comes to offensive rebounds, or they can be sometimes. But he has said that the most lethal shot in the game right now is an offensive rebound kick out for a three, because a lot of those times those shots are going to be wide open. So you're saying that the best defense sometimes is a good offense. Sure. Well, look, I've said many times over the years, when a bad team has a good offensive rebound number, I'll say, well, look, their best shot is a missed shot. Put it up, and then it's up there around the basket, and at least there's somebody there who might be able to go up and get it and score. And not only that, but a transition opportunity is a better opportunity than a set opportunity. Yes. So if you're making them pull it out of the basket instead of just fast break opportunity. Yep. Well, and one thing is happening, you know, another thing that has helped Rick get on board a little bit more, I think, with offensive rebounding this year is I've talked to some of the folks who look at these numbers for the Mavs. And one thing that's been pointed out to me is in the, as you accurately said in the past, Brian, they would work to, they would just, they would send one guy, one guy, the five, whoever the five was in the game, he was the guy that was allowed to go to the offensive glass and everybody else's responsibility was to get back. They are finding this year that their transition defense numbers are actually better when they send more guys to the offensive glass because it forces the other team to keep people around the basket to make sure they secure a defensive rebound and not give up a second shot opportunity rather than be thinking like about I would in eighth grade yeah. just, just sit <laughs> not cherry picking yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah they're not think they're not thinking get out and run they're thinking we can't let the best offense in the league have a second shot opportunity so that is an interesting change that the Mavs are noticing that they're actually better in transition defense the more emphasis they placed on going after offensive rebounds. Unintended consequences yeah, for you for sure. stat heads. Well, let's look at the the week ahead and, yeah. and the Rockets and Hawks game. And then I want to touch on the trade deadline a little bit before we get to Kobe. Um, Houston is going to play Portland on Wednesday night, and then they'll host the Mavs on Friday. Uh, the Rockets, of course, as I think anybody following things know, uh, they did have a great win against Utah on Monday night. Eric Gordon scored 50 points. In that game, they played without Harden and Westbrook. Uh, my understanding right now is for the Portland game on Wednesday, and who knows how things will be Friday, but Harden and Capella are listed as questionable with various injuries. Westbrook didn't play in the Utah game because it was the second game of a back-to-back, and Harden's missed some games lately. Harden's looked out of gas, by the way. I mean, the guy's dropped. I mean, he's still averaging 36 points a game, but Brian, a month ago, he was averaging 39. And they just lost four games in a row. And I think universally the feeling was that, that Harden looks like he's just absolutely halfway through the season because he's doing so much, looks like he's ground down to a nub. Which is the uh, same story, different year for the Rockets. I thought Westbrook was supposed to eliminate that, though. Well, the, pro- 
the fatal flaw, so the Rockets, again, as I mentioned earlier, they traded Paul because they couldn't rely on him to be healthy mm-hmm. in the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, Westbrook has another year on his deal, uh, but they were willing to, to to work with that. Now, the problem with Westbrook is that he's such a poor three-point shooter, mm-hmm. and they, spent, they, they depend so much on spacing. Yeah. So when Harden's got the ball, now the person guarding Westbrook is in the paint. Right. Because he's literally... I think the worst three-point shooter by you know whatever volume of shots. Sure, amongst qualifiers, he's yeah, the worst three-point like percentage. Two percent. Yeah. Yeah. So you're letting him have that, which is clogging the passing lanes and it's clogging Harden's driving lanes. Yeah. So now they're thinking, well, then let's let Westbrook bring it up and make Harden. You know, he can either take a possession off or or be the guy that's you know a two guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they're trying to work that out, and Harden doesn't really like that way of playing so they are just in my opinion fundamentally flawed and if they can't get you know to the western conference finals or finals this year you know d'antoni's gone and and maury's probably gone Mm -hmm. and who knows where that thing's going so it's a i think they had their shot and uh the golden state came seven chris paul's not hurt they don't miss 27 straight threes because he comes down and says we're getting a bucket and, they don't and I'm going to shoot a mid-range jumper. I don't care what analytics says about an elbow jumper. And as we've talked about many times on our post-game show, uh, the Rockets don't have a plan B. They don't have a guy that they can just, when you're missing 27 threes in a row, give it to in the post and get you a bucket to right. at least stop the bleeding. Right, right. Or who's comfortable operating in the mid-range in the way that Paul was. So that's on Friday night. Um, and it'll be the second of four matchups this year between the Mavs and the Rockets. And then Saturday night, Atlanta's here. And that means Trey Young. Um, they'll be they'll be on a night of rest while the Mavs will be playing Saturday on a back to back. Brian, the Hawks will be playing on a night of rest after they play Philadelphia on Thursday night. Who knows how much that'll matter? Uh, they are the worst team in the Eastern Conference, second worst in the league as of this recording. They're twelve and thirty six. Uh, but of course, it will be a chance to see Trey and Luca, Trey Young and Luka Doncic on the floor together. Trey's averaging twenty nine point two points a game. He's actually surged ahead of Luca in terms of points per game. Uh, Harden's one, Giannis is two, Trey's three, Luke is four when it comes to points per game this year. So uh, Luke and Trey actually have a chance to be just the 10th and 11th players in NBA history to score at least 28 points per game in their second season of the league, which is which is pretty darn special. And Trey is an interesting figure. Again, they have 12 wins on the year, so he's putting up a lot of points on a bad team. Mm-hmm. And defensively, I think he's one of the worst players in the league. So take that as you will, in terms of, you know, analyzing how he is as a player. Uh, He'll obviously have a little extra juice in his step playing against Luka because they will always be compared with each other because Mm -hmm. of the trade. Um, But uh, so you have to, you know, you have to kind of keep that in perspective. But I think they've been a a real disappointment uh, with, you know, with Collins and, and him and all the young players that they have. They've expected to be better than where they are right now. And then that will lead to a game at Indiana on Monday, a home game against Wednesday, and uh, you know then the trade deadlines the next day. And it would, you know, that look they just made the trade for Willie Cauley Stein. I mean, gosh, there's probably things to say about that, but we'll have to maybe save it for another time. Maybe we'll just talk about all the trades if well, they do make more than one when the, when the great deadline. The thing about the Willie Cauley Stein trade is that it was basically a free freebie. Yep. You yep. Know, uh, they gave away a the 57th pick in the draft and. Uh, use trade exception to absorb him. So why not take a look? Um, 
I think the needs there now needs now are what they were before the Powell injury, which is a a fifteen point a game wing who can hold his own on defense. Easier said than done. Sure. Yeah. But you think that's what the phone call is going to be about between now and yes. next Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock Central Time or and whatever? And I think it all depends on what the Mavs are willing to give up. If they're just offering Lee, then you're limited. If or they're just willing to absorb somebody into the remaining right. $9.5 million of the trade exception. Right. If you're putting the Warriors pick on the table, which is probably the first pick of the second round, mm-hmm. which is actually more valuable than a late first pick because there aren't the, the, guarantee the guarantees yep. of the first round, that opens up the door more. If you're willing to give a young player, that opens the door up even more. And those young players could be, you know, some of your your bench rotation players. Um, obviously, Bogdanovich would be a dream. Yeah, the Sacramento Bogdanovich, not the yes. Utah Bogdanovich. Yeah, for clarification. Uh, he is a restricted free agent this summer, and because of the contract commitments Sacramento has from Barnes and Heald and Fox uh, and Bagley coming up, you know, they, they can't pay everybody. Right. So I think Bogdanovich would be odd man out. I think he would be perfect, but they aren't giving him away. Yeah. And I've heard that they've already turned down an offer of Kuzma from the Lakers for him. So you kind of think that they're going to want a young player and a pick for him. Um, we'll just have to see, you know, what happens come nut crunching time around the deadline or what else is, you know, what else is available out there. Um, because with Powell gone, as I mentioned, you're seeing that they're playing smaller. And, you know, is is right that guy that can step up into that role or mm-hmm. would this new player be that fifth player? And remember, I mean, Wright's closing some, but Seth Curry's the guy who's been starting. And I know that in his first three starts, uh, the, you know, the numbers, let me see, the numbers were pretty good for Seth in his first three starts. Uh, had 15... Uh, 19 and eight in his first three starts, and then uh, you know nobody had a good game against Phoenix. So I'm not even going to worry about what his numbers are on that one. But and of course, you're seeing when when guys start the Luca effect, where they're getting more open looks. Yeah. And you know the key, and we and and this is probably something we'll have to go over in a future pod is, you know, the crunch time issues this team has had. We saw in the Utah game Saturday. Yeah. Um, you know that is how playoff basketball is played the whole game, mm-hmm. where you're. You're trapping, doubling, just throwing everything you can to Luca, and the other players have got to produce. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be, you know, really important to get more playmaking, you know, significant, consistent shooting. Uh, but uh, in our remaining time here, I want to touch on Kobe because that is the the story um, of of this time, and, and specifically as it relates to, you know, the world of the Mavericks. I mean. Right. We saw what Dirk posted Sunday night. He is uh, really shaken, and I think part of it is is something I didn't really think about much. But you know, his career has really, you know, been during Kobe's time. Kobe mm-hmm. was drafted in '96, Dirk in '98. Uh, Kobe retired two years before Dirk. Uh, Kobe twenty years with his team. Dirk twenty one with his. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, Kobe was a guy that respected game and and respected, you know, a tough competitor and respected somebody who had the reputation for an enormous work ethic and Kobe had that and of course as we know and you've seen it in person we'll get into that story about your offseason with Dirk one time sometime but uh but you know Dirk has that same kind of work ethic that yes. Kobe does and and you know 
we all hate D Wade for various reasons. <laughs> we may make up some reasons, but we hate him. Uh, yeah, I didn't like Kobe because he was on the other team. I didn't really dislike him for personal reasons. Yes. Uh, it you know so. I think that the relationship that Dirk and Kobe had was definitely competitive, but it wasn't uh, personal animosity. Well, look, it's the NBA is a brotherhood. And, you know, I, I use that term thinking about somebody else I want to talk about in, in this last few minutes we have together about Derek Harper, my broadcast partner, and he and Kobe playing together. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a very select group of individuals. And what I love about it is that the, the, the small group – of people who who get to play at the highest level um, that fosters such a genuine sense of mutual respect, especially amongst the greats in the game. And and that exists between Kobe and Dirk. Uh, they had a lot of battles. Kobe won his share. Dirk won his share, uh, of course, including the only time they met in the playoffs in 2011. But, but you know, I, I think, you know, the other thing, too, is that, look, Brian, you know this. You know Dirk very, very well. Um, he's a basketball junkie. And so Dirk, said this in his message on Twitter, but I heard him say this in the past. I mean, he would go home after a Mavericks home game and go home and watch League Pass and go watch Kobe kick butt in the fourth quarter in some game on the West Coast out at Staples Center. And he really liked watching basketball, particularly that. And that so that is a story that I've heard him say many, many times of the years, Brian. Yeah, and, and you know, we, one of the great moments between the two was, I believe it was, it may have been, Kobe's last year, you'll know better than me when, yeah. when, you know, the butt slap yep. and, and, uh, I saw an angle the other day on TV that focused on Kobe during the entire play, uh, instead of being the, you know, mid court angle that you always see on TV and, and Kobe's yelling at his, his, his teammates, like he's pointing at the corner, like Dirk's coming right here. You need to be prepared. Yeah, Julius Randall, get over here. <laughs> course they didn't do it uh Dirk goes right to the corner drains the shot uh it's kind of falling into the bench Kobe gives him the butt slap you know Dirk looks over they give each other the knowing nod mm -hmm. and and then Kobe turns to his teammates and goes kind of shrugs his shoulder goes that was a good shot like yeah. you know and it's like respect like game respecting game and, and it was that moment where you know listen I, you know you're the man. Like yep. I, 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 there's nothing you can do about it at that point. Um, I think Monday was the four year anniversary of that happening. Wow. As a matter of fact, so that is also pretty pretty heavy stuff. Uh, or maybe it was even it was either Sunday or Monday. Uh, it was it was in late January of 2016, and I can remember. You know, we had a lot prepared for our broadcast that night, Brian, about Dirk and Kobe being on the floor together for the last time, and then on the bus ride from our hotel to Staples Center. We found out it came across Twitter that Kobe was not going to play that game tonight because he had that game that particular night because he had a sore shoulder. So that's why he was even on the bench in that position to begin with. And then, you know, that is one of Kobe's two most indelible moments when it comes to him and the Mavericks universe. And then to me, the other one, of course, uh, you know, and people will point to the playoffs and and how how incredible that was for the Mavericks to beat Kobe, Phil Jackson, and the Lakers on the way to winning a title, and that was. That was spectacular. But from a Kobe singular greatness moment, obviously 2005, December of 2005, scoring 62 points through three quarters when the Mavericks had 61. And that was my first year doing the TV broadcast. And, uh, you know, remember the call like it was yesterday. And I remember the feeling of, you know, what in the what in the world is happening here right now? And how do you cover it 
you know, realizing you're seeing greatness, but also it's greatness that's happening against you, not for you. What year was that? 2005, December of 2005. Yep, December 20th, 19th, 18th, somewhere around there, and December of 05. But the dude had more points than an entire team through three quarters of the game, man. Can you believe that? And before you get to Harper, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting Kobe one time in my life. And, and I have a mutual friend. It's not dark. I had a mutual friend who, who, who know, knew him well. Uh, and we're sitting at a restaurant in Dallas. Lakers are in town to play the next night. And my friend looks at me and, and looks at his phone and looks at me and says, Kobe's on his way. Wow. And, and Kobe walks in the restaurant with two security guards who sat a couple of tables over. Uh, the restaurant was empty at this point. It was about 1030 at night. And, uh, you know, he knew my friend well, didn't know me at all, but acted like I was just as close of a friend. And, we sat for about 90 minutes and he just, he was exactly, this was about 10 years ago. He was exactly as advertised. He was cocky and confident and intriguing and smart and funny and charming and, yeah. and all of that. And, yeah. and the one story that I remember vividly, he says, you know, the difference between me and Dirk is this, like if there's 10 seconds left in the game and, and our team is down by one, Dirk's going to make the right play and I'm going to win. <laughs> and what he meant was he's going to take the shot. Yes. That Dirk, if double teamed, is going to pass to the right guy or do whatever. But, and that was quintessential Kobe. Yes, it was. And it wasn't a slight on Dirk. It was just, this is how I do it. This, this is, you know, that he's so confident in his ability and so fearless that he knows he can make it. And he's, he just feels that. Now, that caused issues with his teammates he may have done that to his detriment sometimes, but that's truly unapologetically how he felt. Right. And and he again, he wasn't saying that negative about Dirk. He, he was like, well, that's how Dirk plays, and, and it's that's his style. And and I think it's great that Dirk did that. You know, and I feel that that's a great way to play. But it was just so unapologetically Kobe to say, you know. I'm taking the shot. <laughs> and a lot of times he made them. And, and other times he didn't. And if he missed it, he was not going to be bothered by it. He was not going to be deterred by it. I'll take it the next game too. Right. And so, you know, uh, that that's just, that was the one thing that struck me that I remember from that evening. And I'll cherish that, that night, you know, forever now, because it was yeah. just, he, it, it was an amazing experience. But uh, you obviously, you know, Derek Harper, your broadcast partner, played yeah. with him for a, a couple of years towards the end of Derek's career. Yeah, one year. The, the one, one year, year for Harp, the 98-99 season, was Kobe's third year, and it was Harp's final year of his 16 seasons in the league. And look, you know, uh, other than some Kobe-Harp interactions that I was standing by there and would try to, like, at least – uh, come in and say hi for that's that's my only interactions with Kobe. I don't have any you know anything like kind that. Kind of Jack Nicholson ish. Yeah, sure, exactly. Let me let me horn in there and just at least say hi real quick. But but to me, um, and look, we could go on and on and on about you know our feelings on Kobe. But I think a lot of people have already summed up that the one thing that's very unique about about how about something that I can share about it is working with Harp and. Monday was not an easy day. As a matter of fact, you and I saw Harp on Sunday at an event that we were at, and Sunday certainly was not an easy day uh, because Harp lost more than a teammate and more than somebody in the NBA brotherhood, but he lost a friend. I mean, they were starters together in the backcourt for a significant portion of that particular season with the Lakers, Brian. And, you know, I, I just, I, I, I love the story that Harp told. I've heard it many times. 
He told it on our air on Monday night before the Oklahoma City game and our open to the telecast. And, you know, beyond mourning the loss of a friend, the one story that Harp said was, I knew that Kobe Bryant would be great when I played alongside him because at practice, every player, of course, gets their ankles taped as they get ready to go out on the floor for practice. And then practice would be over with. And Kobe would come back and he would get his ankles retaped to go out on the floor and work on his game at a very high, intense level for uh, a long time, obviously, after practice, if he's going to get his ankles taped. And so to hear him say that, uh, you know, it's the unique perspective that guys like us are not going to have uh, unless we're close enough to hear that story from somebody who's there in the locker room and in the, on, and on the practice floor and seeing that sort of thing. And, man, I just I know he was hurting. And I, I appreciate Harp so much for sharing that story. I know it, but not everybody knows it. And I think it really typifies the competitive fire that Kobe was all about. And I was so uh, had so much admiration for, for Derek for uh, being able to, in a difficult time, share that story and share it and tell it in the way that he did, that it was very powerful. Um, and, and, you know, on our telecast, we showed a couple of pictures at one point that we received from the NBA Getty Images site. That was Harp and Kobe on the floor together and Harp and Kobe talking on a plane together. It was like they were must have been on the Laker charter. And there was just a picture that was snapped of the two of those guys chatting, uh, you know, on the plane. And man, when I saw that, it just, you know, that was that really that made it very, very real to me because my friend, there was a picture of my friend who I think so much of there with Kobe, and I knew how much he had to be hurting. But, you know, as Harp is fond of saying, and I now say it too, the beat goes on and and Harp was willing to sit there and talk about that. So that was that was an extraordinary moment, I thought, on our telecast. And one of hundreds of stories and tributes that are coming in all around the league from Kobe Bryant. I mean, we're not going to get into it right now, but I would encourage anybody, if you haven't heard Shaq from TNT on Tuesday night, I mean, it's, yeah, I was gonna it's mention immensely that. moving. I was going to mention that here as we close. You know, it, it takes it away from just Kobe to how it can relate to all of our lives and yeah. really just not, you know, seizing the day and just telling people how you feel about them right there in the moment and not holding back or holding on to petty issues you may have. Yeah. Uh, go, go check that out. Go check Shaq's, yep. you know, six minutes out that he talks raw yep. about, you know, the big Aristotle, the biggest guy I've ever met who's yeah. literally you know, in tears yep. about that and think about how it applies to your own life. So it's the realist of real talk, Brian, that's for sure. Yeah. So anyway, we will be back next week with more of this 77 minutes in heaven, the follow well and Damaris edition. Yes. Yes. Uh, hope yes. you enjoyed it. Hope we have a better game to talk about than the 133 104 loss against Phoenix. <laughs> we will have trade deadline stuff to talk about. Uh, give us some feedback on Twitter and follow well and be Damaris. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Thanks.